I use the words I choose versus I need to. I choose to spend my time this way because I know that I am going to be happier for it in the next couple of months and for the rest of my life for making some of these trade-offs that I'm making right now. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration about how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Enjoy. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on this show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out. There are companies in the KP portfolio that I would have dreamed of working for as an operator. Let's see if we can't find your next great career move. So I start these things all the same. And that is to say that I will read your background back to you. And then we can rock and roll. Perfect. You got your BA from Wellesley. That's right. Which is a women's liberal arts college in Mass, right? That is the proper and politically correct way to say it. Yes. Okay. Very good. Good. Thank you. And then you went to Broadview International, which you were, I guess, like M&A Finance as an analyst there. Yep. Then you investment went to banking. Investment banking. That sounds terrible. And then you went to um, be a consultant for the initiative for a competitive inner city. Yes. A nonprofit. Which sounds Really cool. It was working with inner cities, right? And I worked with the city of Newark, New Jersey for 18 months on how do you go in there and look at what industries they could invest in to create jobs for people in the city. Well, that's really cool. It was very cool. It was very purposeful, meaningful work. Does the organization still exist? It does. Maybe you should go like, I don't know, get a board seat or something. Out of Boston. like you're like an alma mater kind of. I know. All right. Then you went to uh, GSB, Stanford. That's right. Spent two years there. You went to McKinsey, summer associate, strategy consulting, figuring out your life during GSB. Yes. Your second, you're from your first to second year. That's right. Uh, then you found a company called Salesforce, director of product marketing, spent three years doing that. Mm-hmm. Then you went to a company called Branch Out, realized, why the hell did I leave Salesforce? Uh, you were the head of marketing there for a year-ish? A year. A yep. year. Then you went back to Salesforce as the senior director of product marketing for a year, then VP of service cloud, still in product marketing, two years of that, SVP yep. of product marketing and strategy for five years, then the EVP of marketing for about a year, launched Salesforce's work.com platform, which That's was right. kind of their response to all things that were happening with COVID and the supporting, pandemic supporting response. small businesses. That's right. Then... As of May of 2021, so quick math, what, nine months ago? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Very good. Nice. Good with the quick math. Man, I'm, I'm on my toes today. All right, so <laughs> nine months ago, you uh, joined Samsara. Congratulations, you're the CMO. How did I do? You did really well. Okay. And I've heard you do this for some other folks. And Not so good. Th- this was like an A to, you're bordering on A plus now. So, <laughs> Which is like... It's so pathetic how good that makes me feel, which is literally like I'm reading a script. And so for me to get an A, like I feel so... So it's either you've done a really good job on your research or I did a really good job putting (laughs) it on LinkedIn. That's right. right. So which one is it? Guests are going to start throwing me off and putting the wrong thing on LinkedIn so that they can just watch me stumble. First question, 
What was conversation for you like at the dinner table in Boston? What'd you talk about with your folks? Oh, growing up? Yeah. Being from Boston and actually, and I grew up in the town of Wellesley where I went to college. No kidding. That's also another fun fact. I went to school three miles from my house. Did you live at home? No. No, I did not live at home. I lived on campus. I did occasionally go home for a nice home-cooked meal or have some chicken noodle soup and ice cream dropped off when I was sick. But I lived on campus, which was key for Wellesley. So conversation uh, at the dinner table. And it was nice. We had family dinner religiously every night. Every night. It was wonderful. Same time. My mom, amazing cook. Yes, about the same time, about like a 5.30 or 6 when you're home from school, after sports, before you're getting into the homework. We talked about everything from my dad, what he was doing in business, but it's just the, what happened in your day? You know, what were you excited about? What made you a little, like we do this with our kids, my husband and I now, we kind of go through, what were you excited about? What made you sad, right? And talking about how you have highs and lows, and trying to get it out of them. The reason I like this question, and I've heard guests of mine say this in the past. Actually, my partner, Ted, gave me this advice. Because I, you know, I ask stupid questions, not just on the podcast, but also off air. And I was just picking his brain about raising his kids. And uh, he was very intentional as they were growing older to be at the dinner table. Like that was the dojo where in his mind... That's where kids learned so much. And that was what like kind of triggered in my head what I learned at the dinner table. And so I think yes. it's a nice way of just trying to learn about like some of my guests' childhoods because the dinner table is usually the arena that a lot of that learning happens. It is. It's like you learn about the world. You learn what your parents think about the world. You learn that they think differently about things and that's okay. Yeah. Right. You can debate it and you can have an opinion. And bring your opinion out. It's like the only non-frenetic time that you can actually have a conversation. Like it's not breakfast because breakfast, everyone's running out the door. Yes. Lunch, generally the kids are at school. And then the weekends, usually it's sports, activities, like you're up and doing things. So I don't know, dinner table. It's been kind of a nice thing about the pandemic is that we are more able, my husband and I are more able to do that with our kids. We're not commuting home. Commuting home is me walking upstairs from my office, him walking out of his office at home. Right. And we're able to be there faster for those moments and get more time with them. How do you recharge? What do you do now to be intentional about recharging? My thing is trying to go to bed earlier and then I wake up earlier. So I get up usually before anybody else is up. My husband doesn't love that (laughs) because my getting up wakes him up sometimes. But then I have a couple of hours before our kids get up at seven and I can be up from five to seven. I can do some work. I can collect my thoughts. I can go through emails, write better responses to folks, try to be mindful about when those emails get sent out or slacks get sent out, which sometimes I'm okay with. Sometimes I'm not good about uh, if I'm just trying to get through things. But Do you think of recharging as catching up? Why I say that is because (laughs) both of the times where you've used the word recharge, you've been on a bus and you said, I'm catching up on email. And then you're waking up early, catching up on email. Maybe recharging is just like getting the inbox zero and like letting you focus on the rest of the day. There's something nice for me to be centered about not worrying that I'm missing dealing with something. And I've got a lot of things that I'm trying to balance right now. I've got my kids, I've got my 
job. And I have my mom, right, who I've shared with you. She's going through end of life and I'm trying to figure all of that out. And so for me right now, the hard thing is, is that I feel guilty taking any time to go recharge. I used to do things like go for a spa day. And now I feel like I can't go, you know, there's COVID, right? Number one. So haven't done that because of COVID. But number two, I just don't feel like I can take that time because I only have so much time left that I can have with my mom and helping her. And then outside of that, I only have so much time then that I can give to my kids. And then I have my job. You know, I've started a new job last May and wanting to come in and learn everything and try to get ramped up as quickly as possible. So for me, I'm not prioritizing recharge time. Do you ever think about recharging as a mechanism to improve the quality of the time? That's how I think about it. I do. And that's where, honestly, that's where I want to get to because that's what I used to do. But I am doing things, trying to block time where I can spend just a little bit of time on me or spend a little bit of time thinking strategically for the company, for my team. My mother has a kid at home. My stepbrother, who's young, he's 14. So he's like getting into high school. And she has a big job doing like science stuff. And my family has a very serious history of heart problems. And one of our cousins just had a very serious heart attack. And it was a wake-up call to everybody. And I was talking to her yesterday and I was like, mom, have you gone to get your checkup? Like, have you gone to make sure your vitals are okay? No, so busy. You wouldn't believe how busy these last couple of months have been. And next month is so crazy. And I asked her, I said, mom, how could this be the thing that falls to the bottom of the stack? Yes. And by the way, all of the things that you're busy with are exactly the things that are making me nervous for why I think you should go to the doctor. It's stress-induced. It's amazing to watch the way that life just gets thrown at you and jumbles priorities in such a crazy way because time is absolute. And you make trade-offs with that time all the time. Yes. It's amazing to see. It is. And I think about this and I talk about this. My husband and I have a great relationship where we help each other sort through these things. And... I use the words I choose versus I need to. I choose to spend my time this way because I know that I am going to be happier for it in the next couple of months and for the rest of my life for making some of these trade-offs that I'm making right now. Super powerful. It's amazing. It's hard. And you're extremely career-oriented and you have a brand new job. Brand new job. Nine months in. Proving yourself every step of the way. Yes, With children running around. Yes. It's not easy. It is not easy. No, building trust with people and in the middle of a pandemic. Right. When you're not able to be in person with everyone all the time. That's different. I don't mean to pry and so feel free to answer or not, but like, have you thrown your hands up? Like, fuck, this is is terrible. My worst is when three or four things happen at the same time. That's usually when my coping tools start to collapse and you know it's like all right i'm going to the bar going to balboa i'm having a martini i I don't know what else to do right now it's just (laughs) overwhelming like and it feels 
I can feel it inside of me. Like I can feel so much pressure and anxiety. It ends up being very self-destructive when all of those things happen. Do you even have the option to experience that? (laughs) Because there's so much, so many people expecting you to be something right now. So it's a good fine point on what we were just talking about, which is how I center myself. I think through the pieces of what am I excited about for today? And I try to think through that in the morning. And I try to think through that at night. And I do write down, I should do it in a journal, but I do it in an email thread to myself. And I write on it the things I'm grateful for. And I am grateful to be able to have this time and to be there for my mom. I am grateful to have my kids and to be able to be there and have more time with them in this pandemic. And I'm grateful for this exciting new company I get to work at. And I get to help people build their careers. I get to help people do good work. And so I focus on that. And that does center me when I start to feel the anxiety of I've got a lot to do. And then I just say, I am going to do what I can do today, which is bring my best. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to do everything and do everything perfectly. And that is okay. But you've got to be okay with that. And so when things start to creep up, I go, that's the best that I can do. And I tell people that. I'm really open. Like I tell people at work what I'm going through. Because I find, I do. I didn't used to do that. I will say that. I didn't used to do that. I used to think, and part of this was coming out of, you know, undergrad, going into investment banking, a very male-dominated world with older individuals. I was showing up and trying to show up in a way where I was like, I've got it, right? You can put your trust in me. And so I basically cultivated this way of being where I wasn't talking as much about what I was going through personally, if I was going through anything, because I was worried that was going to show cracks of something. And then I remember at Salesforce, and I remember you've had other guests that have talked about how they've worked with career coaches. They had me take on a new leadership role. It was fantastic. They said, we want to invest in you. We're going to get you a career coach. I did a 360 as part of that. And part of the feedback that came back was people said, it seems too perfect. It seems too all together. It creates distance. And so I started just showing people, this is what I'm going through. These are the struggles that I'm having personally and professionally in the right way. But that actually drew people closer to me. I think Brene Brown said the expression, but vulnerability in yourself is weakness and vulnerability in others is strength. I had a woman named Emily Choi on the podcast. She's the COO and president of Coinbase. She was describing something very similar, which is that she had that same coat of armor on. And it was because she was battling with and against all of these other people that didn't have to deal with a lot of the same challenges that she had in her life. Long story short, at Coinbase, she now sends, I think, a weekly email to the company And in one of her most recent emails, she talked about her father passing. She said she's never gotten such a positive response in anything she's done in her entire career. And people were like, what? It gave them permission to also bring their own stuff to the workplace. I don't even know what the difference is. Like your own stuff is your workplace. Exactly. It impacts you every day. It's like, how are you able to show up? You've got something else on your mind. It's going to come through. Like I had to this week, my mom called and she can't speak very much anymore. And so 
She called me. I wasn't able to pick up. She called my husband. He picked up and, you know, she just said help, right? That's all she could really get out. And so he came into my office and said, you know, let's go over and see if she's okay. And I had to just cancel a meeting I was about to have a one-on-one with someone. And I sent them a note and I said, I'm so sorry. This is what I've got to go do. And, And I feel if I let people know what I'm going through, it does help bring them closer to me. They know that I'm not showing up for a meeting because I don't care. They know I'm balancing all of these things. I am a real person. I've got all of these different struggles I'm going through too. For people I talk to, especially right now, with everything people are talking about with mental health, it's so important, right? This is the way we're connecting with people. This is the way we're helping people. So in the specific example with your mom, when you had to go over there last week and you sent the email, you're not saying, hey, I have a family emergency. Or are you? Are you being specific about it? Like I sent a Slack that said, my mom called and said she needed help. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I will have to reschedule. Yeah. I'm being very specific. Yeah. Because why not? Like, what is the harm in not being specific? I need to let people know what I'm going through. Yeah. I think the reason I ask is like the family emergency thing, like that is kind of another way of just keeping your coat of armor. It's hard to identify with what that actually means. Yes. On the other side of a Slack message. Yes. It's interesting you say all this because I was watching a video of you. Yes. In 2014. So oh, that wow. would make you the VP of Service Cloud. We're going Florida. way back here. Oh, yeah. It's actually, it's really funny. And maybe I misrecognized him, but I'm pretty sure Andy Kofoid is sitting in the front row. He might of be. Your, he must be. Was he there? He must have been. Yes. Anyway. Andy, if you're listening, I'm sorry if it was somebody else. But oh, I, was this in Indianapolis? This this was at Connections. Yes, Salesforce, it was in Indianapolis. Salesforce I was going to say Connections. He it must was, have been there, right? He was right there. It was after Salesforce had acquired Exact Target. Yes, and it was going to the conference and bringing in speakers. I remember it exactly. Okay, so it was Mark Benioff. Yep. That's presented, and then it was maybe Alex Dayon. Yep, and then I think yes. you. Yep. And it looked like there was thousands of people. Probably. It looked like there was a lot of people in this audience. Like, And then there's there's other videos of you where you're presenting and doing all these things. The reason I said it's funny to hear you say what you're saying is because you are very put together. It is so well rehearsed. When you go through your presentation, you don't miss a beat. It's really impressive. And so as I was doing my research and my homework on you, I talked to former guest Sarah Varney and Andy and many others. And one of the consistent things that they always said about you was how well put together you are, how good of a presenter you are. Something we worked on. It's really cool for me to hear you say like, look, that's what it looks like when I'm on stage. Yes. And then meanwhile, that's not always what it feels like. No, it's not what it feels like. Okay. But I got to ask you, how much do you have to practice that? What does practice look like when you do Something like that. I have aspirations to be on a stage that big, nailing my lines as you did. I would say it's a lot of practice. It's more practice to then get to a point where you need potentially less practice (laughs) to be comfortable, right? And I would say I'd have to go back. I hate watching myself. I'd have to go back and watch it from 2014. But 
I was probably too polished. And then I got to a point in later presentations where I was just more able to be me, yeah. right? Like not have things memorized. Like that's the, where you want to get to with presentations is you don't want to memorize it. You just want to be talking to people, like telling them the story, telling them how you're helping them, telling them how the technology helps them. That's the better presentation. That's what sticks with people. And if you can be real, you yeah. can pull in some of your realness. Then people remember it. They don't remember the, oh, it was perfectly said and perfectly timed. They remember how you make them feel. The other thing that I thought of, this is so weird, but listening to you and watching you on stage, following Mark and the team is like, this is a big job. I don't know why. It's kind of just gotten lost on me when I sit across the table from folks like you or like Andy, who's running 70% of revenue at Salesforce before he left. I just view you as like, you know, like we're hanging out, like we're just having exactly. a conversation. We're having a but, coffee. But when you're on stage or when you're in your job and you have a Zoom with a thousand, I'm just making up a number, a thousand people in your organization that you're communicating with and you're practicing what you have to say, do you ever reflect back and think, God, this is a big job. This is, just, I don't know how else I could say this. It just is. It is a big job. Being the EVP of marketing at Salesforce or whatever people are, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. I was in the Uber today and I was just thinking about this conversation. All I could think about was like, man, these are big jobs. I wonder if you think <laughs> about that in the moment. Does the question make sense? I told you it's it a weird one. It does make sense. It's an interesting one because no, I didn't think about it in the moment, right? You think about, am I going to do a good job for the people who have come to listen, to learn for the company. I think about that every day. So at Samsara, we had our company kickoff and our sales kickoff last week. And I think about how is this going to land with all the Samsarians around the world, right? Yeah. Is this going to be worth their time? Are we going to make an impact? Are we going to help them do their jobs better, motivate everyone, explain the huge opportunity we have to help people in the world? That's what I think about. And that puts a lot of pressure on of making sure you're making good use of everyone's time. But then down to the day to day, it's you're talking to people. You're working with people. I think it would be bad if you did reflect on like the gravity of the responsibility, because I think it would take away from b being the best version of yourself in your in your job. Don't you yes. think? And I think that at some point you'd go into every job going, how can I just make people's lives better yeah. today with the products that we're selling, yeah. with being a manager and making people's lives better? And you're not going to nail it every day and every time, right? And for every single person, because everyone's different. But I'm going to try. Yeah. I'm going to try my hardest. In 2008, you, Way back. you were the director of product marketing for three years, and you were working on a product called Chatter. Oh, yes. Was this basically Slack? <laughs> <laughs> it was the social network within, right? The way to communicate within Salesforce collaboratively. Slack. Kind of. It was kind of Slack. There was a little bit of that. Yes. It's kind of funny, isn't it? It is kind of funny. Did it work? It totally worked. It did? At Salesforce, everybody used Chatter every single day, collaborated on deals, collaborated on projects. It was a great way to go and just be able to share information. It was huge. What happened the year you went to branch out? And I know I'm probably going to get the corporate spiel of like, <laughs> well, you know, what happened? Oh, why did I leave Salesforce? Why did you only spend a year 
I'd branch out and then go back to Salesforce. Oh. What do they call it? Boomerang? Boomerang. Yeah. I boomeranged. Yeah. So to talk about that, I have to talk about when I left Salesforce, right? So 2011, I was looking at, do I stay at Salesforce or do I go try my hand somewhere else? And as a woman, I was thinking about when do I have kids? And I had this very open conversation with the CMO at the time, Craig Spensrud. And I said, I want to go try this before I have kids because I would... I hear how frenetic startups can be. I'm thinking about, I'm already working a lot of hours. I'm thinking about going and working more and I want to try that. And I don't think I can do that when I am trying to have kids and I want to go do it at that moment in time. So it was very concerted, deliberate point for me of wanting to do that. And I found this company and I thought their platform and their product was a great proposition for people, right? To be able to tap into your friend network to say, you know, if you're trying to hire someone, well, great. I can go to Jubin's profile on Facebook and if I can tap into your friends, I'm likely to find people like you, right? You're likely to have people in your network that have similar backgrounds. That was a great proposition. And over the course of that year, Facebook changed the way they allowed companies to use the friend graph. And so then I was getting to the end of being there for a year. And I kid you not, this is the story. I went on a family vacation with my husband. His family did a family reunion in Vail. And we were on the flight back. And I ran into a guy, Dan Darcy, chief customer officer of Qualified. And Dan was on the plane and we're waiting at the car park to go get our car. And he's like, Sarah, we miss you. And I was like, oh, I miss you all too. And he went back and he told Craig that. And Craig reached out to me the next day and he said, I hear you miss us. And when you left, you said you wanted to try this for at least a year. It's been a year. You want to come in and chat? Wow. (laughs) So he reached out at that moment where I was looking at, okay, this business is pivoting. There's not as much for me to do on the marketing side as we figure out the product strategy. I don't want to be a person sitting idle And so I just went and had a conversation with him. And he's like, hey, come back in and I'll put you to work in one of these different areas. And I just said, okay, put me in where you've got a big problem that needs to be solved. I don't care if I have a team. I want to do good work for the company. And and that's what happened. So I didn't even get a chance to do a job search. You said um, you wanted to go work more and and do that at a startup. Why? Not, Not work more, but I wanted to try a startup and try growing a business from an earlier stage. Because I got into Salesforce and it was already at a certain stage. And I was thinking, what is it like at an earlier stage? It's hard. It's hard. (laughs) It's so hard. It is. Absolutely. And you're trying to find the right product market fit. And that's what the company was going through. And then all of a sudden, you can be downstream of another company that makes a change to their platform. And there goes the company. And there you've got to pivot, right? And then... When you're pivoting your product strategy, there's less to market. And so that's what I was looking at of the not let me go work more, but if I want to try a startup and try my hand at more of that really early stage building, right? Like a 50 person company, you're in there, you're building everything. Then I wanted to do it before I was having to balance that with kids. Well, you're part of a very elite crew of people. I think they call it marketraz or something of all of these CMOs that have gone on to do incredible things that we're all sharing one floor in Salesforce Tower at some point. 
probably wasn't even Salesforce Tower at that point. Spear uh, Tower, the sixth floor. That's right. Over in the back corner. That's right. That's right. Really cool. All right. I got to get to Samsara because I have so many things that I want to talk to you about. Yes. Is that okay? Absolutely. All right. So this company is really interesting. One of the things that I enjoyed about this prep was learning so much about this company because it's different. Yes. And it's a whale of a company. It's really, really. It's a hidden gem. It's fascinating. So it was started by the same fellas that started Meraki, which was acquired by Cisco in That's 2012 right. for 1.2. Samsara has raised $930 million in private funding from A16Z and General Catalyst and Tiger. Today, it has a valuation in the public markets. By the time this episode airs, given the way that the public markets are acting, could be very different, but around $12 billion. That's right. Uh, which also surprised me in the last year or six months, the stock has not dipped that much relative to other high growth tech companies. So that caught my eye. 1,400 employees-ish, 20,000 customers. 1,600, yeah. 1,600, okay. 20,000-ish customers-ish. These are all yep. public. This is all public. That's right. Uh, it's like looking, you're reading our S1. <laughs> I, I read through the whole thing. Here's another couple of fun facts. This is just for the audience to have some context for those that haven't heard of this business. In 2017, it was a $0 business. It wasn't a business. In 2021, it grew to $500 million of ARR in four years. This business grew from zero to 500 million. That's like best in class of pretty much any company I've ever profiled. Yes. Um, it's kind of unheard of. It's unheard of. And you know what else is unheard of? I heard about this company in the early days because the reps that were working there were making stupid money because you could not hire enough people to like address the growth. It's like, and you see this over yes. and over again in companies like Figma. Nobody's missing their number because it's impossible. You cannot hire that fast. So, Maybe I'll give the floor to you in 30 seconds-ish. What does Samsara do? So we are the connected operations platform. So we are going in and helping companies. And we got our start in the fleet world, being able to help companies with telematics, being able to help companies with figuring out how do you increase the safety and efficiency of trucks that are on the road and the sustainability and then from there, we started expanding out to other parts of operations. So we got from the, just the telematics piece into safety. We got into workflows. We started to get into sites, right? So if you think of all of the parts of operations, this is a whole world. And this is what I loved about it when I started researching the company that just hasn't undergone the digital transformation that the rest of the world has undergone. And there is so much need. These are the businesses like the Cisco Foods of the world that deliver food for us, right? They're the businesses that keep the economy running. These are the ones, especially in the pandemic, this is why this really mattered to me when I started learning about it. These businesses and these people are putting themselves out there every day. They didn't have the luxury of being able to stay at home because we needed them to get out there and deliver goods so that everybody else could be kept safe. And this company helps these businesses to provide a better experience for their workers and to be able to run more efficiently so they can invest back into making the jobs better. And the biggest piece for me, because you also hit on, I worked at a nonprofit, we help with sustainability. We help businesses to figure out how can they cut down on unnecessary driving, like inefficient routes so that yeah. they can they can do fuel benchmarking and figure out they can save fuel. Yeah. They can cut down on CO2 emissions, right? All of that leaves the world a better place. 
And as a human being and as a mom, that is what I want to do is I want to leave the world a better place for my kids and for all the fellow people out there. There was a tweet that I read that you wrote. You said, I grew up with snow days. My kids are growing up with smoke days where bad air quality from fires will keep them home and inside. Yes. Really powerful. It is so sad sad to me. Really sad. A snow day was something to look forward to. And it might not be the same anymore, right? With the number that we're having and the severity. But when I grew up, snow days were magical. Smoke days, those are the days, those are the first times I had to buy masks for my kids. Prior to the pandemic was when we had really bad fires and we had to stay in. I couldn't take them outside. I was worried about their lungs. And that's what we're, we're living in. Not to sidetrack, but do you remember the day when we were in lockdown end of March, like two weeks in, and in San Francisco, it was so smoky, you couldn't see anything? Yes. Not a single person was on the road because you, you didn't even know if you could go outside at that point. The air quality was atrocious, like dangerous to be outside for more than 10 minutes. It looked apocalyptic. Yes. Do you remember that day? I remember that. That was a pretty bad day. That was where... I may have had a martini that day. Don't tell anybody. I mean, sometimes you need to break out a martini. Was this martini at nine in the morning or was it like one? This was uh, an unsocially acceptable time to have a martini. You just call it a Bloody Mary. It was like before lunch, but like after breakfast. Oh, it's a brunch teeny. It was like, I'm not really working today, teeny. You know? <laughs> Sometimes you need those. I remember that day, though, because we were living in our old place, our two-bedroom that I spoke about. We had this balcony outside of basically our office slash bedroom. And there was a covering of basically all of the particles coming down. And I was looking at that going, oh, my gosh. That's everything that's in the air that's just sitting right there on the balcony. Crazy. It's bad. And then you're thinking of what does this do to your lungs? What does this do for little kids? So sad. Anyway, so as I was digging in, I was trying to figure out like zero to 500 in four years, something's going on. It just doesn't make sense, right? Like (laughs) you never see that. There is something else that's propelling this business. What I found out was that there was this thing called the ELD mandate. And in 2017, there was a compliance regulation basically said that all truckers of a certain size have to have this electronic logging device in their car. That's right. And the function of that device was many things. One, it was to make sure that drivers weren't spending too long in the seat, right? For safety reasons. And two, it was basic telematics, like you said, around, which is, I think, a euphemism for telemetry, around all of the data of what's happening in the car. They're yes. just, just the basics. We don't even yes. know the basics. How are the tires? How is the engine? Are they taking the most efficient routes? Just general data that you otherwise have not even a clue about. Every car had to have this. In Europe, it didn't have that. And so that's why, as I suspect, when you see in the S1, one of the reasons why this business has so much of its revenue focused on North America is because that's how it started. That's how it started. Now, there's all these other reasons why it's really interesting to have data about what's actually happening, which is why people are adopting it much more broadly. But in the beginning, this was a serious push. Wrong? Right? You are hired. Okay. You want right. to come over and work for us <laughs> in marketing? Because this is great. Samsara chose, I think because of that, chose to focus almost entirely on the US, which is a very typical startup thing. 
Well, that's also, if you think about it, you just cited the company started selling in 2017, right? It was like five years ago. Exactly. And so where do most companies, if they're based here, start selling? Here. You, you sell in your backyard exactly. so you can be close to your customers, right? Talk to your customers, get to know their problems. That's exactly right. And if you think about most businesses, I think about this when I was at Salesforce, you're not expanding internationally until you feel you've really nailed the value prop for customers. It's home court advantage. Exactly. Of course. You want to be close to your customers, have your product managers, your engineers know them. Plus the complexity as a young company to go into EMEA, hire a leader there, hire a sales team, do all this stuff. Like it's a very different beast. Exactly. And focus is the number one killer or enabler of startups. And so uh, having geographic focus is helpful. The other brilliant thing that this business ended up doing, which has certainly paid off today, is that it used that little thing as a very small wedge to then do what is now the cloud platform providing all of the telematics for these fleet providers. It started small and then just continued to build as this hub of intelligence. Yes, the data. For for these fleets. Exactly. Being able to actually take data in and make it actionable, right? We can do fuel benchmarking. We can let people know how they are compared to, we've got all of this data from all of these different companies so that we can let people know, hey, you actually are inefficient over here. You can do a little bit better. Here's how you can do it better. And then launch, you know, help them to be able to figure out how to drive that action in their business. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about, I say the other thing, I haven't asked you about anything. I'm just (laughs) telling you about your own business, which is- Which you're doing a great job. Oh, thanks. The contracts that Samsara has typically done are not one-year agreements. They're multi-year agreements that are paid up front. You know, in our world, in Kleiner world, when I talk to our CEOs and they're like, we think we're going to get to 6 million, but maybe we're going to get to 8 million. What does it matter? Why are you being so particular about wanting to get a number and then forecasting towards that number? And I'm like, we can make much more predictable decisions on the business and maybe invest ahead if we're going to be ahead of the number. If we're not- If you know where you're going. If you know where you're going. In this business, what Samsara has ended up doing is by getting all of this money and these contracts paid up front, you have so much predictability into the out years of the business. It has just dumped money into sales and marketing to then hire ahead of the business, which is why you see almost 50% of your 1,600 employees are go-to-market folks because you can predictably hire into those roles. For you as the CMO, what does that give you? What leg up do you have knowing so far ahead? How can you put the chess pieces in different ways on the board than you otherwise would be? So the pieces that I think of are, look, I've got certainty with where I can actually go and place strategic bets for us as a company. These are longer term strategic bets of where we need to go and build. And one of the other pieces is we are a new company, so we have to build out all of these pieces, right? So we haven't built it yet. We are five years, six years into being a company that's generating revenue. There's so much opportunity and so much upside. Do you feel like you have the ability to have a higher risk tolerance for the bets that you make five years into the future because you have so much more predictability around the business? Or do you feel like you kind of operate in the exact same way? No, I do think we can be more aggressive in how we're thinking about the bets. We've got product lines that are growing in this incredible way 
And we are thinking about how do we keep investing to stay ahead and how do we invest for the future, really building out and transforming this world that hasn't digitized, right? And there's so much unmet need. Yeah, no kidding. You can see it happening. One of the biggest risks in your S1 that continued to be highlighted was hiring talent to sustain the growth of the business. Yes. As the CMO, how do you think about that problem? This is top of mind for everyone right now, too. We are hiring in a world where we've gone to people being able to switch jobs more easily, which is great. So people can live in different locations. You don't have to be tied to a geographic location to get a job. So you've got to think about what differentiates your company, what makes you special, and why would people want to work there? And it absolutely keeps me up at night. And that's where, for me in marketing, I work on talent brand. And we have to get more of our story out there into the market of how we are solving these real world problems. And being a young company, we just haven't had as much time to do that. What does talent, working on talent brand, Uh, what does that mean in practice? Is that like you put videos of a day in the life of a Samsarin, if that's what you call yourselves, or... You know, you do a better job with your job descriptions. You relight up the website. You make the trucking industry seem sexy. What does that mean, talent brand? So where I think companies can differentiate themselves in talent brand, and this is not easy. This takes time to do. You need to talk about what's special about the company, right? You need to actually put a fine point on why would someone want to work here? And for us, that piece is we get to solve problems that have a real world everyday impact. We are helping to run the physical operations of all of these companies that keep our economy going. And that's where we get engineers that go, oh my gosh, I can actually work on something that is going to help people's lives who have very incredible and difficult jobs. And they love that. They love the fact our technology will help leave the world a better place. And those are the pieces of, as a marketer, you've got to put out and talk about that to show people the value of the work. Because you can say what you do, but you really have to get to why it matters, the impact of it. Yeah, you're saying like, I want to touch more deeply on the mission of what we're doing. Yes. Because then we have an unfair competitive advantage in recruiting. And tell the stories of how do people get to live that every day? And then what is it like to work at the company? It's kind of like what Benioff's doing, like this most recent ad campaign of like Matthew McConaughey in space and... Team Earth. Yeah, Team Earth. What has nothing to do with Salesforce. Nope. It's just pulling on the heartstrings of what matters to people. Yes. Kind of reminds me of that, honestly. It's true. Is that a fair analogy-ish? It's a fair analogy. It's what do we do at Samsara that has this impact for people's lives? And we are. That was one of the things that attracted me to the company. Our products actually have that impact. Yeah. You can say it, but you can actually do it here. Yeah. When you joined, what, it was six months from when you joined to the IPO? Yeah, six, seven. We IPO'd in December. I joined in May. Which is pretty sweet. You know, that's a nice time to step into the company. So we have companies that are just IPO'd. We have companies that are about to IPO. We hire executives into those companies. And one of the things that the executives sometimes confide in me is I got to earn the trust and respect of the team even more than somebody else because a lot of the folks that are now a part of this moment in time of the company have been here for Five years. Years, yes. Right? And so here comes 
Sarah from her big fluffy job at Salesforce and she comes into Samsara and they've told me that employees have been a little bit like, what the hell? You didn't even build this thing to this point. Have you felt that? Is that crazy that I'm projecting that onto you? What was your feeling like coming into that moment? I felt very lucky to get to come in and work with the team. And I definitely felt those pieces of, I wish I'd been here longer. You earn the trust by trial by fire. Uh, the IPO and going through that was a trial by fire. Because for you me, were with so, a lot of the team. I because was you're so, right. The different pieces of it, right? Rewriting the S1 with this one wonderful woman, Sarah Lewiza. We're on the phone on a Friday night and in the document, rewriting different pieces of it, bouncing words off of each other, working with Angelina and team on the incredible events for the IPO, what was going to be on the banner, what was the experience like, and in the middle of COVID, by the way, when you're trying to figure out how to navigate all of that. So there was a lot of trial by fire that we went through, but I do wish I could have had even more trial by fire with the team beforehand. So all of the things that were happening in your life, your mother, your kids at home, brand new job, you're standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange celebrating such an incredible milestone for a company that is an ode to all the work that has been done. And I saw the pictures of you there. Is how I saw you from the outside different from how you saw you on the, on the inside? Like what, what did it feel like? Yeah, I'm curious how you saw me. Uh, ex- <laughs> well, excited as I would expect you to be on yes. the, in New York City celebrating this amazing I moment. was. I was excited. I was happy I could be there and that we could be, you know, we were broadcasting that to every single yeah. Samsarian. We built out this great digital platform. We had people be able to come into the offices if they live close by and have celebrations there. We had people from the team that were there as well on the floor. We'd invited for the folks that had started at the company and were still there, the first 100 employees who were still at the company got to come. So it was an incredible moment for so many people. And I really put a lot of thought in Sanjit, the CEO, put a lot of thought into how do we make this an incredible moment for everybody at the company? And then also looking at alumni, right? There were alumni and we had an alumni gathering out in San Francisco at a restaurant here, right? Outdoors at a brew house so that people could get together and they could celebrate. But there was a lot of thought, a lot of late nights that went into it. But at the same point, I was excited for that. I was also going through all these pieces of having to start my mom on hospice. That's really hard. And having to do that and explain to my kids what's happening and go through the last holidays. That's tough. And make trade-offs. And you got to put on a face when you're doing, when you're doing both those things. You have to be there for people. And then people will be there for you through it too. But yeah, yeah, you've got to go and you've got to do the job. All the jobs. All the jobs. The mom job, the daughter job, right? The job at work. Yeah. It's something everybody does. I mean, there's other people who do it who have more on their plate. And I am incredibly impressed by so many people who balance even more. Can I read you some quotes that you've said or they were written, I think it was in the context of a woman's conference or or a woman's leadership forum. And there were some really cool quotes. I just wanted to read back to you and get your take on it. I love it. All right. And I think this one's relevant to what you were just talking about. But you said, for me, the key was realizing that life and work is a marathon, not a sprint. What helped me take that longer term view was reframing my mindset. 
Taking time away from work actually helps me recharge so I can bring my best self to work and bring better ideas to the table. It's interesting because I think you do know how to recharge. And I, I think do. there's there's interesting ways for you to do that. The part that I was curious about was that realizing that life and work is a marathon, not a sprint. I was just having a conversation with my buddy who's deliberating between two jobs in venture capital. And I said, Bobby, whichever one you'll be happier at is the one that you'll stay in longer and just have more endurance. And I said, A, that's better because you're gonna be more stoked doing your job, but B, in our business, you don't see a dime of carry for eight to 10 years. So if you can't prepare for that marathon, even if one of the jobs is more exciting right now or whatever, if you feel like you're going to get bottled up and suffocated in four years and you're just not going to be able to do it, it doesn't matter. I agree. And you're right. I do know ways to recharge, right? Taking time away, like spending time with my kids, that is recharging time for me. Spending time with my husband, with friends, that's recharging time. I think for a lot of folks, the hard thing is in the pandemic, a lot of those ways people recharged got taken away and you had to learn different ways to recharge. But it's true. I look at it as, and I often say this to my teams, I spend more hours of the day with the people I work with than I do with my family. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to love what you do and love who you do it with and love the reasons that you're doing it, the impact you're having. Ready for the next one? Yeah. In my professional life, I found it helpful to take a look at job descriptions for the role I aspire to be in. Then I'll take stock of what skills I currently have and what skills I need to develop to get to where I want to be. At any high growth company, organizational change offers a great opportunity to raise your hand and say, I want to learn this new skill. That's the benefit of growing your career within a company that in and of itself is growing. You already know the people and the processes and you can focus on expanding your skill set. That has really helped me accelerate my career. That yes. is some of the best advice that anybody could ever give. I couldn't agree more. I look at it as you're never a finished product, and that's the growth mindset. Like you can always be learning, innovating, doing things differently, doing more. But it's true. Like it's what are you spending your time learning? Are you spending your time learning the processes or are you spending your time learning other skills? Hard skills and soft skills. I always talk about that too. There's the hard skills of doing your job and the soft skills about how do you work with people? How do you actually go and influence people? And those become increasingly important the further along you get in your career. And the line that stuck out to me there is that you said that's the benefit of growing your career within a company that is itself growing. Yes. One of the beautiful things about what I do in my job is that we have the fortune of investing in very, very fast growing companies. And you can be as good as you Possibly, you can be the best A player in the world. If the company isn't growing, it doesn't matter. Yes. It doesn't matter. It There's doesn't no matter. There's no headroom to go grow into. Nope. And I would even make the argument that when you went to Samsara, one of the reasons why people will come work for you is because you have access to opportunities that they otherwise would not for really fast growing companies. And not only do you have the access to do so, but you have the judgment to pick the right one. And so when you go to a company that's gone from zero to 500 in five years, there is a lot of headroom where if yes. you have the ambition and the self-awareness to want to improve, then it's your oyster. There's so much to run at ahead of you. And that's what I found when I joined Salesforce. I got on a company that was growing really quickly and there were all these opportunities for me to grow in different ways. And that's what we have at Samsara. 
I see so many similarities in Samsara to where Salesforce was when I joined. It's taking one killer product and then creating a platform. It's going into a whole world that hasn't been transformed and transforming it. And there's just massive opportunity there. And then you think about the opportunities that opens as the company grows. It's just huge for the problems you get to go and solve, for the impact that you get to have in the world, right? For people who are thirsty for that, I mean, there is no lack of work that needs to be done. And when you do the work, a lot of the time, to the other point that you made in this quote, which is that you are already in the company and you know the people and you know the processes. And by the way, those people know you. And so what ends up happening a lot of the time is you'll be like, all right, we have a lot of work ahead of us. We need to go build out a team. Someone on your team might not be completely ready for that job, but out of a function of convenience and that they know you and that they know the processes and the people, give them a promotion. You've built trust with someone. That person knows how to operate at the company, knows the products, doesn't have to come up that learning curve, right? Can go and be effective faster. And to put a bow on this, that is why I love working with startups so much. Because even now, Samsara is growing 70%. And on a big base. So it's growing, right? It's growing and that creates opportunity. Absolutely. When you're going from one to 20, to 30, to 50, to 100, like when you're growing three to 600% in the early days, forget about it. There's so much runway ahead of you. Just bet on yourself. You recently, you hosted a fireside chat with Lindsey Vaughn. It was amazing. At sales kickoff. Yes. Okay, I have questions about this. One, is it easier to be on the interviewer or the interviewee side? (laughs) Great question. I find it easier to be on the interviewee side. I'm not going to lie because as the interviewer, and this might be different for you, you're doing this every single day. That's not what I do every single day. I am trying to think through what is she saying? How do I take that in? How do I make sure it's relatable to Samsarians and what we're going through? And then how do I piggyback off what she's saying to get to the next question. Because I've seen people do interviews and they just fire off the standard questions they've written. Just read off the script. And it doesn't match up with what the person's saying. They get to the end of an answer and then it's like they completely ignored that they said something poignant or that there was something to dig into deeper. It's a skill. Interviewing is a skill. Just like you talked about presenting. And I'm sure you've gotten better as you've done it more. Yeah. Oh, I can't even listen to my first 20 episodes. I'm so (laughs) embarrassed. And I think the hardest challenge with interviewing is very, very active listening. And I would even say for people like Lindsay, for people like you, for pretty much everybody that I've had on this show, you have a list of notes right there. You've never looked at it. It is that they have been, you have been, everybody has been so trained. Like you've had a lot of media training. And what that ends up doing is it keeps you very rigid to a very particular script. And you're laughing because you're the marketer doing the training on behalf of everybody. I'm like, oh, we've done the media (laughs) trainings. Yes. And so if I'm not actively listening, then all we're going to revert to is the mean, which is the exact same things that you've said on every other podcast or on every other thing that you've done. Which is not as interesting. You're not pulling the nuggets out. That's right. Active listening. How did you prep? Did you prep for the Lindsay interview? I did prep. We went through and I had an incredible team who helped me do this, listening to different interviews she'd given, going through different articles, taking a look at her speaking style, figuring out 
what questions could we ask that were also relevant to us as a company, yeah. right? You want it to be relevant to the audience. And so we're thinking we're in this phase as a company where we've gone public, we've got so much runway ahead of us, and there is so much we need to do as a team. And Lindsay has all of these different insights about, yes, skiing's this individual sport. I did ski team on a hill in Massachusetts when I was growing up, nowhere near close to anything she's done. But I remember we'd be telling each other about how the terrain was, right? Oh, it's icy over here. This is what you got to do. Because we wanted people on our team to place. So even though you're performing alone in that final minute. And that's a lot of what different jobs are is you are executing different pieces alone, but you're all in it together and you're helping each other and trying to make sure that was coming across. It takes time. It takes preparation. Most of what I think makes a good interview, like I said earlier, is very intentional, active listening. So then what I've started to ask myself is how do I cultivate a better listening style? How do I make sure that I'm super present? like really, really present. And that actually comes to like, got to have my coffee. I need to get sleep. The worst interviews I've ever done, in my opinion, are the ones where I didn't sleep very well the night before because I'm not there in the way that I need to be. And I think the most interesting interviews that are done, not by me, but by others, is when there's second and third layers of questions that get asked. You can't do that unless you're like all in. You peel the onion. You're all in. And And it's hard to do that. It's very hard. And I'll say, even while he's getting a hard time right now, Joe Rogan is a master of being incredibly present. When you watch his interviews, there's nothing else in the world that matters to him other than doing that interview. And I think it shows. And so I guess what I try and do, my prep is just making sure that when I'm walking into the room, I am all in. And I am exhausted. When I hit stop recording... I walk out of here so tired because it's like there's such a tax that comes with being so present for an hour and a half. You leave it all on the field. And going back to our earlier point about recharging and the way that we recharge, I am exhausted after this, but I am very recharged because mentally there wasn't space for anything else that I was doing but this. So while I gave it everything that I had and the tank is basically empty once it's done, it gives me a lot back. So that's back to your point of you were commenting for me that I get a little bit recharged when I do go and focus on work and I'm present and I'm there and I'm thinking through things. It is recharging for me to think about problems and have that concerted time. Just like this is your concerted time to think about what you are doing right now. Yep. That sounds like a similarity we have. Yep. 100%. And it's like, even this morning, I did berries. I was exhausted after. And I did it with my coworker, Annie, who's probably in the the room next to us. And we saw each other and we were like, we feel great. Like, we feel so good, you know? That's my, I've got my uh, workout after this. And that's my other recharge thing is doing a workout a couple times a week with a virtual trainer, kicks my butt. That is great recharging energy for me. I love it. Well, this is a beautiful place for us to stop. I wish I could keep going, but I have to get you to your workout. I end all of these things the same way. The first is, what does grit mean to you? Determination. Keep going, even when things are hard. Are you hiring? I guess, is there anything you're not hiring for realistically? (laughs) Are there any key roles that you want to shout out now? Ooh, we are hiring. Come to our website. We're hiring across 
everything. And in marketing, we're hiring on basically all of my teams. So come and take a look. And if you hear this and you're inspired, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Or should they just go default to the website? LinkedIn. Go to LinkedIn. Look me up there. Shoot me a message. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. This was great. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.